Thanks for being with us on this sunny Sunday morning. Well, have you ever pulled out your cell phone during a staff meeting or at work, maybe when somebody else has the room and you've started texting and wondered if maybe you were breaking a company rule or if you were being rude? Wondered if you could get fired? That might seem a bit extreme, but this was a case that was before the BC Tribunal. Taking a look at this, a woman who says she was fired with cause for texting during a meeting fired for texting and being told that she was not a team player. Well, she was awarded slightly more than $5,000 in compensation for the service, for her service after she was fired for this. During the hearing, the dentist argued that she had cause to fire her employee. The employee was a dental assistant. The dentist argued that she did have cause to fire her employee because there was problematic texting and I believe uh, there was a rule in that texting and anything that is distracting from your job not allowed in that office. So how does this all play out? How can we break this down? Let's bring in Lior Semfiru, an employment lawyer, partner at Semfiru Tamarkin LLP. Lior is on the phone with us now. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Good morning, Joe. Uh, what do you take from this case in that it even made it to the uh, the BC Human Rights Tribunal, uh, this case of an assistant, a dental assistant, being fired for texting? Well, what I see here is what I often see, which is employer con- employers confusing the concept of cause for discipline with cause for termination. Those are very different concepts. If an employee does something wrong, breaches a rule, breaches a policy, the employer may well have reason and cause to discipline them, to provide a warning, perhaps even a suspension. But to get to the level of a termination for cause, that is very far removed from, uh, from discipline. Cause for discipline uh, is uh, normal. Cause for termination is what we call the capital punishment of the employment relationship because it's reserved for the worst offenders. And in this situation, on the spectrum of workplace offenses, if she was texting during a a meeting, no, sure, that's not acceptable. It's not something she should be doing. But there are far lesser penalties that would have been appropriate. And it seems like this employer jumped the gun and, and confused the two concepts, discipline and cause. And it's because of that that this employee was awarded compensation. Right. So because if you go back to this case, so this is something that, that, that the primary reason given why this employee was fired was because of her texting habits. And it all focused, or in particular, it was one staff meeting. Other staff members apparently had told this employee that uh, her cell phone habits were perhaps questionable. Uh, she testified at the tribunal that uh, that, or sorry, the dentist testified that she had also met with the employee to tell her that her that, that there what there was a texting policy, and it could only be done if it didn't disrupt work, which I guess she argued that it did. So it almost sounds like there was a, I don't know a breakdown of communication, or it wasn't clear uh, to this employee what the policy was. I, I think that's exactly what happened, and the one thing an employer should always do. When it has a policy, that policy has to be clear, but it also has to be properly communicated to the employee. A policy that sits in a drawer and no one knows about doesn't do the employer any good, but it goes beyond that. An employer can build up a case to potentially terminate someone for cause, but it has to do certain things in advance. It has to provide warnings, and you have to document those warnings. Again, if it's not in writing, I'm going to say it doesn't exist. So, for example, this particular dentist, if it had incidents uh, similar incidents with this employee, and they documented them and provided warnings, don't do this or else, and this pattern continued, 
then yeah, at some point it could have terminated this employee for cause. What more can it do at that point? But to not engage in that type of process, to not document things, to not provide advance warnings and opportunities to improve, you can't just get from point A to point B down the road. Uh, and, and if you do, you're going to find yourself on the wrong side of a wrongful dismissal. Uh, in this case, too, it sounded like she was kind of texting under the table uh, at the time of the one incident in question. And uh, she testified, from what I understand at the tribunal, that she was uh, texting her husband because their cat was missing. Does it matter why you are texting if you're breaking a policy? I, I think that from uh, the perspective of the employee, probably not in that there could have been other ways she could have dealt with it. She could have excused herself, uh, asked permission from her employer, explained the situation. I think most reasonable employers would have said, okay, I understand you have a, a family situation, we'll excuse you. But, but to do it in that way, it shows a level of disrespect. It's probably disruptive in, a, in an office meeting. So, no, I, I don't think that the employee can be excused here. But even though she may have done something wrong and likely did, it still does not justify the employer to, to go to the ultimate, the worst penalty that it can impose. There would have been less or more appropriate uh, uh, measures it could have taken. I, I believe it also came up in the tribunal, the fact that she was described as not being a team player uh, as part of the office. And one of the examples given was that she didn't attend extracurricular events. Is that, that's something that I found interesting in that as an employee, are you required to attend extracurricular events outside of work to show that you're a team player? Uh, that's a great question, and the answer is absolutely not. There is no requirement to to attend these types of events, to do anything off work during non-paying, uh, not, not paid hours. Uh, and certainly there are you know, perhaps reason, reasons to do so, career advancement reasons, but there's no legal obligation. But this raises another point, and that is this employer could have absolutely terminated this individual legally for pretty much any reason, as long as it was prepared to pay her her severance. What happened here is this employer decided to avoid paying severance. So they could have said, you did this, we're going to let you go. We don't think you're a team player. We don't see a future for, for you here. So we're going to let you go. We'll pay you the severance that you're owed. Uh, and in that situation, it, this would have been legal. What made it illegal is the, uh, the effort made by the employer to rely on these incidents, not being a team player texting to say that you're deserving of the ultimate penalty. Hmm, it's an interesting one for sure. Uh, does it come down to then again? So I, guess I, I kind of hear two things. And one, it almost feels like the employer uh, realized or with the texting incident felt that uh, there was a, a way there, saw a path to get rid of this employee. Uh, clearly, there was more going on than just texting under the table at a staff meeting. Uh, the employer thought, OK, I can get rid of this employee because they've broken the policy. Uh, but is it also, and, and you touched on this, that if there is a no texting policy in the workplace. It needs to be front and center. You as the employer need to make sure everybody knows about it and knows what the penalties are if you break that rule. It absolutely does. And that applies to texting policy. That applies to any workplace policies. Probably some of the major policies could deal with things such as workplace harassment, for example. I've seen many employers having a, an extremely strict workplace harassment policy that does all the right things, defines harassment, and, and talks about penalties, 
but no one knows about that policy. It sits in a drawer somewhere, and that employer takes it out when it's convenient. That's not a way to go. Uh, policy should be properly communicated. In some situations, training needs to be provided so that employees understand the policies and the expectations. And it's also uh, a good practice to bring it out every once in a while and remind people of the policy that we talked about last year, perhaps make it a yearly type of a, a situation. By doing that, you can rely on it. You can potentially uh, terminate earlier and easier if an employee is in breach of the policy. But to just have a policy is really not going to do an employer any good. Is it enough just to, to send out an email to staff saying, by the way, remember, or this is your annual reminder, make sure you read our policies, uh, they're all found here. Uh, is it enough to do that and then assume that the, that employees have done that and, and that employees should know that I better read this policy? I, I would not do that. I don't think that is a good practice, certainly not with important policies. We, you know, we touched on, on, on one, for example. You want to know as the employer that the employees are aware of it. And most employees are not just going to click a link and take the time to read for something when you know they're not getting paid. They have other things on their plate. So since it's the employer that wants to at some point rely on this policy, these policies are for the benefit of the employer. The employer should be proactive in ensuring that the employees are aware of it. They should distribute those policies, have the employees sign an acknowledgement that they've read it, perhaps have a, a brief meeting where they go over the policy so that there's no uh, ability for anyone to say, I didn't know, I didn't understand, or I didn't appreciate what the consequences are going to be. Do you see it often that uh, employers uh, try and find ways around or, or try and find ways to, to dis- establish cause, maybe when there isn't cause, to get out of paying severance? Absolutely. And, you know, every time someone comes to me uh, when, uh, when they're supposedly be let go for, or let go for cause, I can tell you that in 90% of those matters, and I'm not exaggerating here, in 90% of those matters, there isn't quite cause. Now, it's important to remember that the threshold for cause is a very, very high one. Our courts have made it very clear that it's only the worst offenders are deserving of a termination for cause. And if the employer doesn't dot their I's and cross their T's, then they're not going to be able to terminate for cause. A lot of employers do jump the gun. And the other thing to understand about cause, it's really all or nothing. There's no such thing as having 95% cause. Either the employer has cause to terminate or it doesn't have it at all. Because the standard is so high, even if the employee did something wrong, there, there's potential ability to, to provide other penalties. And if an employee has been let go for cause when really there isn't cause, they could have significant entitlements. And, and it could be in some situation as much as two years pay. So it's certainly something an employer has to take seriously. All right. Uh, interesting case, uh, definitely. Uh, Lior, thank you so much for joining us to talk about it. I appreciate your time. Thank you. My pleasure, Joe. Thanks for being with us on this Sunday morning. Well, a new poll done by Research Co. takes a look at Canadians and our views when it comes to, well, various topics, but this one looking at same-sex marriage. And you might be surprised by some of the findings. Joining me to talk a bit more about this is Mario Canseco, the president of Research Co. Mario, great to have you back on the program. It's my pleasure, Jill. Thanks for having me. Thanks uh, for being here. You ta- you're talking a bit about this, and I've, I would have thought, and maybe I'm f- too naive on the subject, I would have thought people are just okay with this, and we've come to the point where it's not even an issue. Same-sex marriage is, is, is legal. Uh, it's, it happens. It's just like any other marriage. But uh, looking at these results, not everybody uh, is quite on board. Well, I think there are two ways to look at this. You know, if you go back to the times when, uh, you had more than 50% of a, a Canadian saying that this was a bad idea, that they didn't want to see it. 
uh, to have 64% now say that they believe that same-sex couples should continue to be allowed to legally marry in Canada. Uh, it's a good sign, but you still have those pockets uh, where residents aren't that keen on the idea. One in ten who say, don't give same-sex couples any kind of legal recognition, and 15% who say uh, they should be forming civil unions and not marry. I mean, when you look at the history of, uh, for instance, interracial marriage in the United States and how long it took for for uh, that issue to, to be settled, uh, it's really remarkable that we have come such a long way in just over 50 years of history of same-sex rights. And, and did it break down or did you see the lines as far as where it was that, that you were getting? And, and granted, it's a smaller percentage of, of people saying that it shouldn't be legally recognized or should be a civil union instead. Was there a, a particular age group or area that those responses were coming from? Yeah, there's a couple of things that really caught my eye. I think one of them is definitely uh, political. Uh, the level of support for same-sex marriage to continue stands at 75% for Liberal Party voters in the last federal election, drops a little bit to 67% among NDP voters, but still ahead of the national average, and it drops to 56% for Conservatives. So if you're a Conservative voter, you're more likely to say uh, that you like uh, either civil unions or not any kind of legal recognition for same-sex couples. Uh, There's a little bit of a shift as well when you look at specific provinces. Uh, The highest numbers are in Saskatchewan and Manitoba at at 77%. Uh, B.C. and Alberta are also ahead of the national average, but it drops to 62% in Quebec and 60% in Atlantic Canada. So those are two areas where this isn't particularly uh, as as high as we see it in in some other places. Uh, But the number one thing that really caught my eye when when I was looking at the findings is uh, ethnicity. If you're a Canadian of European descent, 71% uh, believe that same-sex couples should continue to be allowed to legally marry. It drops down to 44% if you're of East Asian descent and 42% if you're of South Asian descent. So politics and ethnicity playing more of a role in this particular issue than region, age, or gender. Uh, which is interesting, and I guess, it, I mean, it takes perhaps people longer to embrace the idea or to, to realize that, that this is something that's legal and it's happening, but it is interesting when you look at it along those lines. Well, you know, I think there's a couple of issues here. One of them is Discussions that you may have had in your home about these issues tended to be a little more open when it came to European households. And we also need to factor in uh, what happens in your homeland. If you come from a place where this isn't happening yet, I mean, we don't really have uh, many countries still that allow same-sex marriage. It definitely uh, is something that happened uh, more rapidly in Europe and in North America. So you maybe are coming into Canada with some of those ideas that you brought from your homeland. And this is something that is uh, essentially catching you off guard. I think this is one of the reasons for the level of undecideds among those uh, those, uh, respondents of a specific ethnicity to be higher. There's only 9% of European residents who are undecided on this issue, but it jumps to 21% for East Asians and 25% for South Asians. So it's really more about an it's really more of an information issue for me than anything else. Hmm. You also asked people about SOGI, which is uh, the uh, school curriculum, part of the school curriculum, which uh, which has been uh, certainly the uh, the subject of many debates. And you asked people about the uh, the SOGI inclusive education. Now, what were the findings there? Well, we only see that there's one in five Canadians who are opposed uh, to SOGI inclusive education. So that's a very 
good number. There's 62 percent who are in favor of it. So you have a three to one margin when it comes to this issue. Uh, one, one thing that was quite interesting is there, there are no uh, humongous age differences on the issue. Now you have 60 percent of baby boomers, 62 percent of Generation X and 64 percent of millennials. Uh, who are happy with this idea. Uh, I think what is quite interesting here is to look at it more from the standpoint of a, a politics. Uh, conservative voters, again, 53% thinking that inclusive education is a good idea, but it climbs to 63% and 70% among new Democrats and liberals. So once again, politics playing a role in the way we look at same-sex issues. Uh, 18%, uh, according to this, also said they are not sure uh, I'm curious, and and I don't know. I don't think there's any way to know this, but my guess would be of the people that answered this poll, or people in general, if you were just to ask people on the street if they'd ever looked at Soji, looked at the actual literature, if they knew exactly what it was, the answer would be no. Well, yeah, we we gave them a, a little bit of an explanation, which is essentially this is going to raise awareness uh, and welcome students of all sexual orientations, gender identities, and family structures. That's all we told them. But we still see a little bit of a shift there. You have 18% undecided. You only have 20% who are opposed. So there's definitely a situation here uh, where residents tend to gravitate more towards the idea of giving kids more information. Uh, that's always a good idea. And, and I think that is one of the reasons for the numbers to be where they are. Um, also, if we look at the um, controversies that have happened because of soji inclusive education, Ground Zero is Alberta. We've had a lot of movement uh, legislatively before with the NDP government that was in place. Now certain changes that were brought in by the UCP. And this is the place where the highest level of support for the policy is actually being seen. So the more you have read about it, the more likely you have to say that you have a view and that view tends to be positive. Uh, and speaking of Alberta as well, and you also asked people about the issue of gay-straight alliances or, or queer-straight alliances in schools, because that was also an issue on whether or not parents, uh, schools have to tell parents if their children are participating. Yeah, this one was a, a, a very uh, even split. We have 45% who say parents should definitely or probably be informed if their child participates in a GSA or a QSA, 37% who disagree. Um, what's interesting here is to look at the situation on a regional basis. Uh, more likely to say, don't talk to the parents and let the kids do whatever they want. Quebec and BC at 49% and 46% respectively. In the prairies, there's a little bit of a change. There's 46% of Albertas who believe that schools should not be compelled to advise parents uh, if their child participates in a GSA or a QSA. Again, one of the issues that has been discussed um, since the UCP government came into place earlier this year. All right. Well, interesting findings and very timely given it is uh, Pride Weekend. Uh, Mario, thank you so much for joining us. Always good to talk to you. Talk to you. My, my pleasure. Anytime, Joe. Thanks for being with us. Well, yesterday on the program, we were chatting with Dave Brown, who's a recreational angler. And we've had other anglers on the program before saying that they really feel like they are being the scapegoat for the Fraser River Chinook fishery, saying that they have been widely curtailed in what they can do this season. And because of that, there has been widespread, well, there have been negative consequences in that industry, saying that they're all for the conservation of the Chinook. 
Chinook, but they are not the major problem. Uh, yesterday, if you were listening to the program as well, you would have heard Dave Brown say that he thinks that the recent fishing trip made by David Suzuki and the CEO of the David Suzuki Foundation was a bit of a hypocritical trip. Well, joining us to talk about that is Jay Richlin, the Western Regional Director General, uh, Western Region Director General of the David Suzuki Foundation. Jay, thank you so much for taking some time with us this morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Uh, what do you say to Dave Brown and some of the other anglers? I know it's been a lot of the a lot of the message boards as well, saying that at the same time that the David Suzuki Foundation has launched this uh, "Don't Hook a Chinook" campaign, uh, David Suzuki and, and a ta- another top member of the foundation uh, were at a fishing lodge uh, fishing. Well, for one thing, they were not fishing for Chinook, so that's that's really important. And they were not fishing near the endangered Fraser runs. Uh, they were in Haida Gwaii, far away from the areas where the restrictions were in place, and, and everybody there was following all the rules. But the most thing that I would say is that most Fraser River Chinook populations are threatened or endangered. We know that they are the essential food for the orcas, and everybody has to do something, has to do something to make this get better. We have had restrictions on shipping, ship speeds, changing shipping lanes. Whale watching has been curtailed. They've been pushed off of southern residents. They can't even take those tours anymore. Commercial fishing has been restricted. The, the recreational anglers also need to be restricted. Right. So their argument is uh, that they've been pushing that they would like to catch and retain hatchery fish, hatchery Chinook, not the Fraser River Chinook, and that in doing so, they wouldn't actually be uh, be an issue. That wouldn't be a problem for the Fraser River Chinook because they wouldn't uh, even have an impact on the run if they were to do that, though. Well, that's it's not exactly correct. And when you're fishing in the place where the endangered runs are, you're you're very likely to, to catch them anyway. And if you release them, you're doing better. But there's still a chance that that's harmful. And it's not just the catching of the fish that's an issue. It's having the boats out on the water at the same time that the orcas are trying to feed, which is why all the whale watchers were also pushed off the water and made to stay over 400 meters away from any whales if they did see them. And the, the fact is that the recreational fishermen like to say that they're only taking a small percent, but they're taking the fish that are about to make it up the river to spawn. So they're taking a very important percentage of the fishery. There is no argument that the recreational fishery doesn't have an impact, and there is every argument that we all have to reduce what we do to these Chinook and to these whales in order for both of them to survive and to continue to be our neighbors. They draw more people to this province than almost anything you can imagine. And they're incredibly important. We've never called for an end to all fisheries. We've never asked for lodges to be shut down. We want sustainable fisheries that people and wildlife can continue to enjoy forever. Uh, and so when uh, when David Suzuki and Steve Cornish were at this lodge then, so they didn't hook or didn't catch or release any Chinook? David and Steve were not catching Chinook, and they were urging everyone at that lodge. David spent his time at that lodge telling everyone there about what's happening with Chinook and Orcas. He also then went out twice. He caught a couple of coho, and he said, you know what, that's it for me. I'm done this year. He loves fishing. He loves fishing more than almost anything. And he spent the rest of that time, he noticed people were filleting their fish, and then most of the carcass was going into the dumpster. He started getting that fish, scraping the bones, turning it into salmon patties, boiling the heads, making soup, teaching all these guys up there, they thought it was hilarious. By the end of the trip, they were fishing more from the dumpsters than they were from the ocean. He made that entire trip about spreading the information that we're trying to spread about how important it is that everyone does their part.
And so there was no chance in that scenario to uh, to catch a Chinook and then release it. There was. Absolutely, there was. And some people at the lodge may well have been doing that. And it was all well within the regulations for that area and that time. Um, of course, we're urging people to do even more. Um, we believe that the regulations needed to be more stringent. We're very happy that the ones that were put in place were put in place. We think the department did um, you know, some good things, and I'm willing to say that, which is probably a shock to many people. But, uh, but sure, those, those, were, those were emergency measures, and now we need a long-term plan. It's probably going to take five or ten years to figure out how to rebuild these stocks so that we can continue to fish them. And, you know, I think very importantly, so that the orcas who have no other choice, they can't get their food anywhere else they are going to not be around if we do not increase these Chinook populations. Which I think people would agree on. And I think where we're the, the recreational anglers are saying that this looks, at the surface it looks bad, is that here you have, like you said, David Suzuki, who's all about conservation and teaching people about this, but he still put himself in a scenario where even inadvertently he's fishing for coho, but could have caught a Chinook. At the same time, he's just launched a campaign saying, don't hook a Chinook. It's unfortunate, sure. I, I, I won't argue with that. That's that's kind of irrelevant to me, actually, because that's not what he was doing, was trying to fish Chinook or, or disobey the rules or get away with something. But he um, he has made a personal decision to not catch Chinook, which is incredibly hard for him. It's his favorite fish. He loves fishing for Chinook. And uh, he was trying to tell as many people as he could about that in a trip that was to build relationships and get to know people. So, uh, you know, it's unfortunate, but it's really, I don't understand how it somehow suggests that recreational fisheries shouldn't be constrained. It's, we have this very difficult problem where everybody agrees that the Chinook are in trouble, you know, seven or, you know, what, seven are endangered or at, at risk of endangerment in the Fraser. Everybody agrees the Chinook are in trouble. Everybody agrees the orca are in trouble, but nobody wants to say that it's their activities that are, need to be curtailed. Well, it's just not true. We do all need to take one. Uh, that, that comment that Dave referred to was about everybody needing to give up a little bit to get the Chinook and the orca back. That's what that meant. That's what that was about. And, and I think it's so disingenuous to try to weave this fishing trip into an effort to reduce restrictions on Chinook fishing. That, that just doesn't even make any sense to me. Well, and I think their point was, uh, and again, they're pushing to catch hatchery Chinook, not Fraser River Chinook, but they're also concerned saying uh, that, uh, and we had the federal fisheries minister on this show who said that there were no gillnets in the Fraser River that were catching Chinook. The anglers saying that's absolutely not true. There have been gillnets in the Fraser River. Nobody's paying attention. Nobody is, is making sure that's not happening. Uh, I think their point is that there are a number of other things that could be looked at in addition to the anglers that would help save the Chinook. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. And there have been, that's what I'm saying. We worked for eight months with Fisheries and Oceans, Environment Canada, and Transport Canada to put restrictions on every activity that harms the whales and the Chinook. So municipalities on the water are having to up their sewage treatment. Shipping is changing lanes, slowing down. Imagine how much money it costs to make your ship late. Fisheries are being curtailed. Commercial fisheries are being curtailed. Recreational fisheries are being curtailed. Whale watchers are out of their minds with how much curtailment they have faced. Everybody is doing something. Could there be more? Yes. What about First Nations fisheries? But in every single sector, everyone who is asking to being asked to do something is pushing back saying it's not me, it's not me. What about First First Nations fisheries also should be constrained. Should be, but are they? Conservation is the first 
priority under the law. First Nations food, social, and ceremonial fisheries come next, and the department's decision about whether to open those or not is based on those precedents in law. I have not got any personal information myself about gillnets on the Fraser, so I can't address that. If it's happening and if the food, social, and ceremonial fishery is closed, then it should not be happening. I agree with that. All right, uh, Jay, we'll have to leave it there. We're out of time, but I do appreciate uh, you making the time for us this morning to talk about this. Well, thanks very much. Uh, and, you know, let's just hope that we're all not still talking about this in uh, five or ten years. <laughs> all right, sounds good. 8.15 on this Sunday morning, as I mentioned, a very busy Sunday morning. And joining me on the line now is Michelle Fortin, board co-chair of the Vancouver Pride Society. Thank you so much. I know it's a busy day. Thanks so much for being with us this morning. No problem. Thanks for having us. How are things shaping up right now? What are we expecting a bit later on today? (laughs) Well, we're expecting a few hundred thousand people to come down and watch um, floats and bands and hopefully some folks even carrying protest signs uh, because Pride uh, has history being a protest. And uh, there's a big festival at Sunset Beach. So just lots of things for people to do. Make sure you bring sunscreen and uh, water because, as usual, it's a gorgeous day. Uh, exactly. We don't want people being uh, dehydrated or getting sick. No. It's all, <laughs> that's the last thing people want uh, <laughs> d- during the event. For sure. Uh, uh, talk a little bit. So hundreds of thousands of people expected, like you said, it's a huge event. It seems like there was more uh, controversy leading up to this event with the exclusion of UBC and the public library. How has that changed or has that changed things this year? Uh, well, I guess what it's done is created the opportunity and space for the community to talk a little bit about um, what feels safe or safer for them and how we actually engage in conversations um, that bring value as opposed to bring um, hate and divisiveness. So, you know, one of the things that um, we've done is basically respond to our community that reached out, so folks from within UBC and within VPL, saying, please do something. As the Pride Society, we look to you um, to help us uh, feel safer. And it's interesting when folks within an institution um, who are queer or allies um, say, you need to do something, we're not feeling safer, safer in this space. And do you think this will change things in that? Because there has been a lot of feedback. And if we look at uh, at UBC, so UBC hosting Jen Smith leading to the exclusion from the parade. Mm -hmm. Some of the feedback has been, you might not agree with what Jen Smith says. You might think it's it's off. You might think it's even hateful, but it's still Jen Smith's right to say that if Jen Smith wants to. So I I guess if Jen Smith wants to have a party um, and talk about the things that um, uh, that she chooses to believe that are actually against our charter rights and freedoms. Uh, th- that's one thing. It's another thing for her to be given uh, space, which to a certain degree suggests that what she's saying, A, isn't controversial, and B, isn't untrue, because it's being held at a, uh, an institution of higher learning. And I think, you know, beyond what we had to say, if you reflect back on Trinity Western University, Douglas College, Simon Fraser University, all places where freedom of expression is important as well, they made a decision uh, that they weren't going to put their staff and students through um, uh, a presentation and said, no, you're going to have to book your room somewhere else. 
So, and, and because of UBC's decision then, so what would UBC have to do at this point to be allowed to be in the parade again in the future? Well, the great news is UBC is already doing the work that we've asked them to do. Um, so in September, they're going to take a look at what their room booking policy is and indeed how they can ensure that, um, well, you know, differing views and opinions exist and must exist, um, that folks that are uh, talking about intolerance uh, or hate um, won't be welcome in that space. So they're looking at their booking policy in September and I'm very excited because the VPL has actually reached out and said that they want to work with the community to help to develop a policy that works for them. Um, and I know that the library in Toronto went through a, a similar process last year. So the good news is we actually have a template for what that might look like. Are you concerned at all? Because some of the things that I hear from people, too, is now this fear of, of saying something that, that might be taken as hate speech or might be taken as you're not allowed to say that. And I had someone ask mm-hmm. me the other day, well, can I not say that there is a biological difference between men and women or take it a step further and say there is a difference between women and transgender wom- women? If somebody is to say that, does, is that considered hate speech? So um, I- I'm not a lawyer. Uh, what I would say is that if that is someone's decision around their politics uh, and those are the, the, those are the conversations that they want to have, the Pride Parade probably isn't a great place to find allies for that conversation. Um, you know, and happily, we live in a province where um, there are other places and spaces for people to have those conversations. Um, but public institutions, especially public institutions that have so many queer, trans, and two-spirit folks, um, I think those are the spaces where our community is saying, not in this space. So yesterday I was at the Dyke March and, you know, there were some folks there that don't believe that trans women are women. Um, and they're not a lot of voices, but they exist. And at the, at the march, um, you know, they were present. Our pride parade, you have to have, uh, you may have to make an application to be here. Um, and if you don't meet the, um, the criteria that have been set, you don't get to participate. And someone who has rhetoric like that wouldn't be someone that would be able to participate in this parade. Right. Uh, and, and you mentioned the library, too. And I'd heard, too, and after the decision was made about the library, people saying that they didn't feel safe there. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. it still has, as far as I, I know, it still has the safe place uh, sticker at, at the front or still has the signage saying that. Mm-hmm. Uh, do, do you find, do you think that the library is a safe place? So, uh, you know, the, the reality for me is that I'm white, middle class, university educated um, <laughs> and can pass in this world and have a lot of privilege. So um, my ability to feel safe there is very different from that of a, uh, a trans young person or a person of color. And I think one of the things that we're saying after 50 years and still fighting, which is our theme this year, it is that, well, many of us in the community um, have all of the rights and freedoms that every other Canadian has. Not everyone does. And until everyone does, until everyone can feel safe in the library, not just me or, you know, or you or folks that look like you and I, um, then, then, then we are going to have to kind of step up and be better um, allies and, and actually hold people accountable.
Uh, do you feel has have the exclusions this year um, taken away at all from Pride? Like you said, fifty years and still fighting. Have they mm-hmm. uh, served as a, a distraction to to the main message? You know, I, I think that um, uh, it's important that we're having these conversations. Uh, our, uh, I mean, we were working with the library before the the actual um, presentation even happened to say. Please think about this. So the good news is, is that people are thinking about it and they are talking about it. And that's what's important, I think. At the end of the day, we're talking. Um, you know, while they're not participating today, they are still connected to the Pride Society and to um, the opportunity to be uh, better allies in the community. And that's exciting and that's important. Uh, do, do you fear at all, though, that, that there is a point where, where it almost goes too far and that I, I've heard people saying as well that, that pride has taken such, has, has become such a, it's supposed to be this inclusive place, but it, they get the impression that it's all about free speech as long as you agree with everything pride says. Um, you know, you, you don't have to agree with everything pride says. Like I said, our decisions um, were, were actually driven by folks in the community that work or um, attend these institutions saying to us, please, please do something um, that will allow us to feel uh, safer. And so that's what we reacted to. Um, And we did try to do work um, uh, ahead of having to rescind people's participation. And we fully expect that UBC and VPL um, have uh, a ton of integrity uh, and that they will invest some time and energy in that process, um, you know, uh, to figure out how to best support the community. All right. Um, bottom line, like you said, uh, the, the idea for today, it's a, a very big crowd, a big turnout <laughs> and people uh, coming out to support Pride and to be part of it. Uh, any last advice for people who are coming down to Pride, what they should do? Should they get there early? Oh, absolutely. Get here early and um, find a great place to watch. And again, hydrate, put on that sunscreen uh, and keep in mind that this is an inclusive uh, space, uh, that love is love. And we really want people to take a look around and embrace, um, embrace diversity. All right. Uh, Michelle, thanks so much. I know it's a very busy morning uh, today. So thanks so much for taking some time. I hope everything goes well. Thank you so much, Jill. Have a great day. Okay. Well, it is the long weekend and it is a beautiful one. If you like sunshine and warm temperatures and what have you, lots of people camping, I'm sure taking advantage of the beautiful scenery we have here in BC. But that also comes with a reminder to make sure you are fire smart this long weekend. And joining us to talk a little bit more about that is Hannah Swift, communications assistant with the BC Wildfire Service. Hannah, thanks so much for being with us. Hi there. How are you doing? Uh, Very well. How about you? I'm good, thank you. What main message do you want to send to people who are doing exactly that, enjoying the the beautiful outdoors of BC this weekend? Yeah, just a reminder to be extra cautious out there. Um, It has been uh, quite a different season than we've seen from the past two years, so people can get a little bit complacent. Um, But um, August is generally the kind of driest month, and it has we do typically see the most uh, wildfires during August. Um, So just to be careful out there and if you're going to enjoy a campfire, make sure that you're following all the regulations and there's lots of information about that on our website. Um, Yeah, but just um, dispose of those cigarettes properly and keep a heads up. And if you see anything um, that you're concerned about, just give us a call. Um, 
at 1-800-663-5555. And that's if people see anything like a smoke or an abandoned campfire or anything like that? Yeah, any kind of burning violation, an unattended campfire, or if you're concerned and you do see smoke in an area, we want you to report that right away. All right. Where are we sitting? Do you know where we're sitting as far as the number of wildfires we've had this year? Yeah, so we're just under 600. Um, And this time last year, we'd almost seen 1,500 by this point in the season. Um, So it is quite, quite different from the last two years. And um, but that can change quite quickly, especially as we're seeing a drying trend coming up in the in the forecast. Oh, absolutely. Uh, can we, do we know what we can attribute to that, to the, such a, a decrease in the number of fires? Because we do often talk every year about the number that are human caused. Is it that people are getting the message or it's different? We haven't had as much lightning and just different circumstances. Um, just different circumstances, different weather events. Um, we have seen more frequent uh, rain in the forecast and more frequent rainfalls. And that's really what kind of what dictates how big the fires are going to grow and how easily they'll spark up. And do we currently have any fires, or I mean, there must be some, but uh, fi- any fires of note burning in the province? Um, we don't have any fires of note at this time. Um, since Thursday, we did have 10 new fires, but nothing of concern, um, all quite small. Um, and those are mostly, mostly in the southeast and in the Kamloops Fire Centre. Um, and then we did have one that started up last night that was just 13 kilometres south of Lytton. Um, and that one we had air tankers and helicopters respond, as well as uh, just under 30 um, personnel from the BC Wildfire Service. So that one is just at six, six hectares now, and it's, um, it's uh, being held at this time, I believe. Okay. Do we know how that one was caused? Um, I believe it's suspected human, but it is under investigation. All right. It must be frustrating for, for wildfire crews because every year we do repeat that message. And you would think that it's a no-brainer if somebody is smoking in the wild or if somebody has a campfire. You would like to believe it's a no-brainer to be extremely careful and to make sure you don't start a fire. But clearly, we need to keep repeating that message. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that, that goes back to just um, calling in anything you see as well for any kind of violation. Uh, and do you know what the, um, as far as campfires that are currently allowed, can people, are there, are there restrictions that are in place right now? Uh, so the BC Wildfire Service doesn't have any in place, um, but definitely check with your local jurisdiction or um, other, other authorities in that area. All right. Mm-hmm. And do you know what the fines are or what, what are the penalties if somebody is caught uh, in contravention, say of an open burning or, or is caught doing that? Yeah, so an open um, burning violation ticket is um, $1,000 and $1,150. And you may be required to pay up to $10,000 if you're convicted in court. All right. And do you think, does that act as a deterrent, hopefully, for people? I would hope so. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Would uh, deter me, that's for sure. Uh, And and how are crews doing as far as they're usually so much busier this time of year? I would imagine you're still, people are still on call and people are ready to respond throughout the season. Like you said, we're going into another uh, dry, uh, uh, dry stretch. But how are crews doing with uh, with having uh, a year that's not so busy? Um, Yeah, so like you said, we do have them all um, on standby and ready to go in the various areas of concern. Um, And we have assisted out of province quite a bit. So we've sent people to Ontario, Alberta, the Yukon Territory, as well as Alaska. Um, I believe that we've assisted with just under 1,300 personnel. Um, up to date. Uh, most of them are back in the province now, though. So. All right. I, I guess that's the good thing about it, too, is if one province is having a, a relatively or a more inactive year, uh, mm-hmm. that, that does free up people to go and if there are fires in other provinces. Yeah, exactly. And Alberta did have quite the season um, so far already. 
Um, so we did. That was kind of our major assistance there was to Alberta. All right. Any other advice uh, for people? Obviously, check ahead if there are uh, burn uh, uh, restrictions, uh, depending on where you're going in the province, uh, and to be careful. Uh, And that number, so people should be calling that number. It's not, I mean, obviously, if you see a raging fire that's causing a a danger, I would imagine you can call 911 as well. But it should be uh, for anything of concern, people should call that number. Yes. Yeah, it's the 1-800-663-5555. Or you can do star 5555 on a cell phone. All right. And does that get you to a, to a live person? Yes, it does. Okay. Yeah, and that's 24-7. It is. Yeah. All right. Uh, that's a great advice for people. Uh, do, you, do you find, it's ten, technically, does this weekend tend to be one where, because there are so many people out and enjoying the great outdoors, that this is one where if, if things go a bit sideways, it could, it's this weekend? I mean, it can be, but it, it can be any weekend. So we just always have to keep our heads up. <laughs> All right. Well, that is a great advice for people, especially as they are enjoying uh, BC and it's on this beautiful long weekend. Uh, Hannah, thank you so much for taking some time with us this morning. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. 911 on a new night Thursday March 14th on Global stream on Stack TV